Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. In today's special episode, recorded at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, is interviewed by our founder, Klaus Schwab, all from the Holland Conference Halls here at Davos, Switzerland. It's a conversation on trends and technology you won't want to miss. Let's let them get started. Good afternoon, and uh, it's one of the settings I prefer during this meeting instead of being on the big stage to be really in a discussion and uh, having a conversation with uh, people who really matter. And um, uh, Pat Gelsinger, of course, I don't have to introduce you, Pat, you are the CEO of Intel, and uh, you are here not only as a, represent, as a representative of Intel, but as a representative of a whole industry. Mm-hmm. And um, I think your insights into an industry which is so much discussed at the moment <laughs> under many aspects, I think will be very valuable for all uh, of us. And um, we know um, after some kind of sluggish growth last year, I think uh, the prospects for 2024 uh, are more robust. Um, and um, there are many issues to be discussed. And Pat, I, I would like uh, maybe as a first question to ask you, how do you see the evolution of the, it's a very general question. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you see the evolution of the chip market? Yeah, and uh, obviously a lot to talk about. And first, it's just an honor to be here with you, Klaus, and you know what you've done in creating the World Economic Forum. I just say for everybody who is looking for, right, you know, continued progress and continued peace, we owe you a debt of thanks. Thank you. So thank you, Klaus. Um, And as we- Thank you. You know, and the uh, semiconductor industry, the chip industry, obviously coming out of COVID, right? You know, we went from, you know, potato chips to semiconductor chips. You know, the world knew what we were about. And uh, we achieved the, what I believe are the two most consequential pieces of industrial policy legislation since World War II. Yeah. The EU Chips Act and the U.S. Chips Act, you know, to fundamentally say that uh, this idea of semiconductors, and I always like to ask people, what aspect of your life is not becoming more digital? Everything. Everything digital runs on semiconductors. Where oil reserves have been, have defined geopolitics for 50 years, right? Where the technology supply chains is more important for the next 50 years. And that's why we've seen this whole, you know, idea of the industrial policy around semiconductors to be so absolutely seminal to economies, to industries, to national security around the world. And since then, right, you know, the world has woken up, you know, to the criticality of this industry and we're well underway. You know, we've announced projects, others have announced projects to start rebuilding. And if we were here in 1990, 80% of the world's semiconductors would have been in Europe and US. And today, 20%. 
right? You know, when we said by 2030, could we achieve a moonshot goal of 50-50, you know, where we truly have rebuilt the industries in U.S. and Europe, which by the way, almost all of the technologies and semiconductors emanate from U.S. and Europe. This is our industry. Let's rebuild it. Let's create a balanced, resilient supply chain. And in the almost three years since we've been on this uh, journey, and February 15th is three years for me at Intel, that uh, we've made tremendous progress in beginning to rebuild those supply chains. But this takes a long time, Klaus. You know, to uh, build these factories is about five years, you know, for them to come up in place. So three years later, guess what? We're not up in place yet. You know, we're still got a lot of work to do, but all of the things are moving in the right direction. And I'm super proud of the things that we've accomplished in that uh, uh, time. Pat, uh, when we when we speak about semiconductors or chips, we have uh, sometimes the feeling it's a more or less uh, an identical product. Uh, but uh, actually, we should much more uh, distinguish between different categories. Could yeah. you could you explain a little bit? And when and maybe also um, when you said eighty twenty percent and now fifty fifty percent, if you relate it to the different categories. Yeah. yeah. And you sort of put, you know, I put semiconductors into four buckets, memory chips, you know, DRAMs, flash memories into specialty chips. You know, these would be like sensors for cameras or RF chips for analog radios, mature chips. You know, these would be things like for microcontrollers, right? And older cars and then leading edge, right? And today, you know, the leading edge market is hot, largely driven by AI. Right. Because, you know, imagine if you have an old node chip, maybe you do 10 tops. If you have a modern node chip, you do 200 tops. Right. You know, it's just dramatically different, you know, the performance capability. So those are the four major categories of uh, semiconductors, as I like to uh, view it. And obviously, when you're making, you know, factory commitments that take five, six years to come into manufacturing, you know, tell me what the demand signal is next quarter. You can't even answer that question, much less what the demand signal is five to eight years in the future, right? And these are long lead time investments. So you end up with crazy cyclicality in the industry because, you know, markets go up and down, but you build factories that are five years into the future. And the only way to run a semiconductor factory, you know, huge capital asset, if you run it empty, it costs X. If you run it full, it costs X. So you always run it full. Right. And that creates some of these, yeah. you know, crazy economics around semiconductors. And today we're in a reasonable position of supply demand balance. Obviously, we've had an oversupply of memory. We're probably going to go into an undersupply of memory because nobody's been investing in it. You know, we have lots of investment going into leading edge. You know, I expect there's going to be a lot of pressure on mature because uh, China in particular has been building a lot of capacity, uh, in that area. But uh, right now, as we think about the decade in front of us, AI is this insatiable demand for compute, yeah. right? Insatiable, right? We're going to be building the biggest machines that have ever been built, and we're going to be driving AI to the edge that everything, right, that we touch will be fueled by AI capabilities, and it's going to need more capabilities as a result. So we're going to see this being, you know, I think we have 10 great years in front of us for advanced logic requirements driving, you know, the industry and many of these factories that we're building uh, right now. You mentioned cutting edge uh, chips, and uh, uh, may I ask you, uh, we, you uh, come back to this 80, 20, 50, 50, uh, how does it apply to um, those uh, cutting edge uh, chips? Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, but, but maybe first I want to ask you, why did uh, uh, West or the US, uh, particularly and Europe, lose out yeah. and uh, all those cutting edge uh, chip factories? Uh, I think 95% are now located in Taiwan, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Taiwan in particular, a couple of other, you know, Korea as well. Yeah. You know, but fundamentally, as I like to as I like to describe it, never was a vote taken in Brussels or DC to get rid of this industry. But there were votes taken in the Asians, uh, uh, countries, Korea, Taiwan, China, to get this industry. You know, they put in place long-term industrial policy, tax investment, et cetera, to attract this industry. And 30 years later, they attracted the industry, right? And all of a sudden, in COVID, we all woke up and we realized, oh, my gosh, what happened? 30 years of industrial policy, and we lost something so critical to our future. The world needs balanced, resilient supply chains. And that's what created the environment for the U.S. and the EU CHIPS Act. Now, when you look at, I mean, already 2016, if I'm not mistaken, um, China put out uh, several development plans, but some people, uh, even today, China has not yet uh, come up to the level of Taiwan. Um, and uh, why is it so difficult, could you tell us, to produce those cutting edge? Uh, yeah, as, as I like to say, you know, if you want to be a cutting edge semiconductor supplier, you just need to invest 20, 30 billion of capital per year. You need to invest you know, eight to 10 billion of R&D per year, and you need to do that for 30 years. And how much do you invest? You know, in technology, you know, we do 18 billion of R&D per year as a company, per year. You know, uh, we, you know, we'll do over 25 billion of capital last year. That's going up next year. It will go up the year after that. You know, this is extraordinarily long-term R&D and capital intensive. It's a consolidating industry. There's only three companies in the world that are capable of doing these cutting edge chips, TSMC, Samsung, uh, and uh, Intel. You have key technologies like the EUV technology yeah. from uh, ASML, key research like IMAC in Belgium. You know, and, uh, you know, frankly, uh, Europe has many of the core technologies. And as I like to say, between US, Europe, and Japan, are the source of all of these uh, core technologies. It's expensive, it's R&D, it's extraordinary innovation. And uh, sometime, Klaus, I'm gonna get you uh, into a bunny suit in one of our fabs, yeah. because you these fabs, you know, they're almost $30 billion to build one of these complexes. These are the largest construction projects on earth happening today to build the smallest things that have ever been built on earth. This is extraordinary. Right. And what's being done. And they're done then at scale over and over again. We're producing these extraordinary chips. You know, today our most advanced chip is about a hundred billion transistors, you know, on a single package, you know, and as we continue the progression of Moore's law. And as I like to say, until the periodic table is exhausted, Moore's law is alive and well. <laughs> and we're going to hit a trillion transistors by the end of the decade, right? In a single package yeah. device. You know, this is just extraordinary. But if I understand directly, it's not so much the development which is costly. It's what, what you call the foundries. And, uh, can you, can you explain why 
there are quite a number of uh, manufacturers, but so few foundries, if I'm not mistaken, so yeah. five foundries or five to six, I don't know. Yeah, you know, being able to, you know, lots of people can design chips and this idea of, you know, fabless semiconductors, you know, it's R&D centric, yeah. right? But they do, it's not capital and manufacturing centric. There's very few people that manufacture, you know, semiconductors and only, as I said, three that can do leading edge, you know, today. And, you know, this is very expensive, very R&D uh, intensive, extraordinarily intellectual property heavy. You know, we have, you know, 100,000 plus patents are associated with the leading edge uh, semiconductor manufacturer. 100,000. Yeah. You know, associated with it. You know, it's just, you know, quite stunning, right? What's been built up over the 50 yeah. year history of the semiconductor industry and every aspect of your life needs more of them going forward. So if you build, for example, now a factory, I think in Magdeburg, uh, in, in Germany, um, is it a foundry or what, or for cutting yes. edge, or is it uh, just a normal chip factory? No, this is cutting edge. So it's right? cutting edge. Yeah, and this will be, you know, we expect when it comes online, you know, our most advanced process technology, you know, that we're just uh, soon to bring into manufacturing is what we call 18A, yeah. sub two nanometers. You know, this will be beyond that. So this will be on the order of one and a half nanometer devices that we'll build yeah. in Magdeburg. So this will be not only the most, uh, advanced manufacturing in Germany, it'll be the most advanced manufacturing in the world will occur, you know, in uh, the Magdeburg site. You know, we're quite excited about uh, yeah, you know, getting I, that un underway. And to, I know that uh, Chancellor Scholz is very excited. That, uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, uh, that, uh, so Deputy Chancellor yeah, Habeck, no, just, he, he referred to you and probably <laughs> saw you. Even. Indeed. But the most advanced manufacturing today in uh, Europe, you know, is what we do in Ireland at four nanometers. You know, outside yeah. of us, you know, it's probably in the 10 to 15 nanometer range. This is a huge leap forward for all of Europe. <laughs> So if I understand you correctly, you may design chips and you may um, outsource the production to someone exactly. else. To the foundry. Right. Yeah. And we're going to be a, we design chips and we're a foundry for chips as well uh, going forward. That's, that's the intellectual property is with you. Right. For the foundry, but the intellectual property for the design is with the design company. With, yeah. yeah. Which... You are both now yeah, uh, designed. Right. Essentially, I'm rebuilding Intel. We're taking one broken company and we're creating two distinct companies yeah. inside of Intel, yeah. a manufacturing and a foundry company and a product and fabulous uh, company inside of one. Yeah, thank you. Now, you referred to artificial intelligence and uh, there's one chip factor. I don't want to mention the name who is very much uh, talked about because mm -hmm. uh, uh, his or its chips are particularly related to AI. Yes. Could you explain? And um, are you also in this area, or what? What is the um, what is special about AI? Yeah. And, you know, this idea of, you know, high performance accelerated computing, right? And I give credit to my uh, friend Jensen, right? You know, uh, that, uh, hey, they have pursued that domain pretty consistently for 20 years, mm. you know, high performance throughput computing. And then he got lucky with AI really lucky. But he had steadfastly pursued that architectural pursuit of high performance computing, largely in graphics, you know, for a period of time. And then AI happened. And remember, AI is an overnight 50 year success, yeah. right? The foundations of AI, you know, were in the late 60s, 
right? And then for over 40 years, nothing happened, right? When I was the architect of the 486, right, in the 80s, I was going to make it a great AI chip. What happened in the 80s in AI? Nothing, right? And then all of a sudden, the compute got big enough, the data got big enough, the algorithms got good enough, and we've seen this explosion of AI, right? And right now we're seeing these very large systems for training, right? And we think about, you know, GPT and open AI and so on. But the next several years of AI won't be around big model training, you know, for hundreds of billions and trillions of parameters. The next several years of AI, in my estimation, is how do we use those models, yeah. right? How do we deploy them? How do we inference them? And how do we move them out of the big data centers into every device that we use. We've just launched what we call the AIPC, right? How do we make, you know, instead of having 100 billion parameters in the cloud, how can I put 10 billion parameters of your data on your PC that you're operating locally? And I call it the three laws of edge and AI. You know, one is the laws of economics. If it's on your device locally, much more cost effective, 10, 100 times cheaper. You know, second is the laws of physics. If I have to round trip to the cloud, the speed of light is still the speed of light, right? Versus doing it locally. And the third is the laws of the land, right? The regulatory requirements. Am I going to take my real time factory data to somebody else's cloud environment for local inferencing of my manufacturing line? Absolutely not. 80% of the data is still on-premise and privately held. So because of that, we see this idea of going from training, which still has exciting science in front of it, to much more inferencing deployment and edge uh, you know, applications. And that's why I'm you know, quite excited, because there's going to be both. We're going to continue to see the science of AI evolve, you know, but very much the deployment and utilization of it is where we believe you know, the primary action will be for the next couple of years. So the research comes mainly from inside the companies, not from university and from the scientific world today, because at the origin, it was mainly the scientific world which drove the semiconductor development. Yeah. And of course, you are Big beneficiary. In, your, in your first uh, stage of career, yeah. you were very much at the one of those drivers. Yeah. But today, uh, can you tell us uh, how much um, the research is driven uh, by industry and how much by the scientific world? Yeah, you know, uh, and we've seen this shift of more and more of the research and development to industry over a sustained period of time. You know, one piece of the CHIPS Act was, uh, you know, the establishment of NSTC in the U.S. You know, we had hollowed out that leading edge uh, research. And one of the things I believe, you know, needs to, you know, for, you know, Western, uh, you know, democratic oriented countries, we must rebuild that long-term research. Yeah. You know, long-term research is 30 plus years. AI took over 40 years to hit maturity. The transistor took over 30 years to hit maturity. You know, we must keep that long-term investment. And that's pri primarily, you know, from governments, public sectors, DARPA-like things. We have lost that because businesses like mine, we're sort of like 15 years or less in the R&D. And we've seen that shift over time. And I think that's very unfortunate. And now as we think about the science of AI, you know, in particular, you know, today, uh, you know, you remember Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? You know, all of our AI systems today are thinking fast, 
Yeah. We haven't brought reasoning into AI. It's a huge area of research, and most of the foundations of that, you know, were seeds planted 20, 30 years ago about how we can prove correctness of systems. Today, our systems hallucinate. Tomorrow, if we're going to use them broadly, they have to be right. So, how can they be fast and right? Right. Just like, you know, we've seen thinking fast and thinking slow, huge areas of research in front of us, huge areas, you know, as I like to say, until the periodic table is exhausted, we're not yep, done. Yep, yep. You know, well, we have about two thirds of the periodic table to go. Still lots of new science, new materials to be discovered, you know, uh, into the future. This is, uh, you know, what I think for a technologist, the next couple of decades, I just wish I was still in my 20s, right? The next couple of decades are going to be absolutely spectacular. Yeah, it's the exponential face now. Oh, my but, gosh. Um, it's going to be so good, yeah. Klaus. You know, right? You know, how old are you? You and I need to find a way to get younger because it's going to be a <laughs> thrilling few decades. We keep younger. We keep younger. <laughs> See, but... How does it come that I uh, come back to this 8020 uh, semiconductors are uh, essential uh, element for national defense and national security? Why uh, did uh, the U.S. particularly, but also Europe, have it slipping out? Yeah, I think people were somewhat asleep at the wheel. From the policy perspective, there were, you know, a few people, uh, you know, raising the uh, concerns. But remember, we were in an era, you know, where, I, you know, it was all about lowest cost supply chains. You know, hey, we don't care if we manufacture, you know, we're going to create the intellectual property. We'll, we'll invent the algorithms. We'll write the software. Right. You know, we're sort of happy to bring other countries in the world into that Manufacturing, that's hard. That's low end. We really don't want to work, right? You know, we want to invent, right? And I think that was the overall general views, right? Literally of the Western world for a couple of decades. Then all of a sudden we realized in critical industries, right? And I think the automotive industry is facing this right now. You know, we could lose the entire automotive industry because we've lost the supply chain, right? And the semiconductor industry, you know, literally, you know, we were on the hair's edge of never being able to recover the manufacturing of this industry. You know, I've, uh, you know, said to some that, you know, had I started the rebuilding of Intel a year later, mm -hmm. I don't think I could have accomplished it, right? It was that much on the edge that we would have outsourced too many generations of yeah. technologies and never been able to rebuild it in the future. Because particularly for semiconductors, R&D and manufacturing are commingled. Right. You know, a factory without R&D in the semiconductor industry, you know, essentially becomes a boat anchor within six months. Right. You know, it is that, you know, because you're constantly doing research in the factory, in the manufacturing you know, process itself. R&D and manufacturing are inextricable in this industry. What is the dependence of the industry on rare materials? It's actually, is this a limiting factor? Or? You know, it's actually surprisingly not that terribly constrained. Right. In that sense, you know, we don't use that many materials. Remember, God's gift to mankind was silicon. Right. Sand, the most prevalent material on Earth, right, is our core material. So he gave us lots of it. Right. You know, and the refining of it's in, you know, Japan and Asia. Right. And Europe. You know, so the core materials are actually not that severely limited. Other portions of the supply chain, but silicon itself isn't that bad. But we are taking steps to make sure we have built resilience and sustainability. 
you know, the environmental aspects of the chemicals that we use is a super important, you know, factor to us. You know, Intel is decades ahead of anybody else in terms of the sustainability. You know, we've committed to, uh, you know, by 2030, you know, full, uh, you know, 100% renewable in our factories and our type one and type two, you know, full sustainability of our water use, 2040 net zero. You know, so it's a huge and important topic, you know, for us over time. And, any place we find, you know, critical material limitations is how do we go, you know, expand that? Because remember, most of the critical minerals issues are not minerals issues, they're refining issues, mm -hmm. right? You know, where are the minerals, you know, they're usually fairly available. It's yeah. where are they refined are the key points of constraint. But could energy be a limiting factor because some people uh, are concerned about the high consumption of yeah. uh, electricity? Yeah, and today, you know, when you think about the IT industry as a whole, different studies, but probably somewhere in the three to five percent range of energy consumption, you know, goes for IT infrastructure today. Different studies would indicate, you know, and particularly with the surge of AI, you know, that that could triple or quadruple. Yeah. Right over the next decade, yeah. so that could become quite constraining, you know, to build these uh, big, massive data centers. Which, by the way, puts pressure on us. How do we keep reducing the power requirements of our chips, as well as you know things like water cooling, yeah. right? So that we can increase the efficiency of them as well. Another area of significant uh, research. I come back to China. Um, when do you think China will? Um, have caught up with it, really with the frontiers of uh, chip technologies. Yeah, the, you know the uh, export policies that have been put in place. You know, and recently we've seen the the Dutch, uh, in particular, yeah. you know, in place the U.S. policies, Japanese policies, etc. It sort of puts a floor mm -hmm. in the ten to seven nanometer range. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, for it. And, you know, we, you know, are racing to go below two nanometers and then one and a half. And, you know, we see no end to that in sight. You know, and I see the policies in place, you know, and it's not like China's not going to keep innovating, but this is a highly interconnected industry. You know, the staging of Trump, right? The mirrors of Zeiss, you know, the equipment assembly of uh, ASML, the chemicals and resist in Japan, the mass making of Intel, all of those together. You know, I think this is a 10-year gap, and I think it's, it's a sustainable 10-year gap with the export policies that have been put in place today. You know, and I do believe that that portends well for the policies that have been established in the world, you know, right, for export and uh, competitiveness, right, in this uh, environment. And, you know, we're leaning hard into making sure that's the case. Now, there are so many investments going on, like in Magdeburg and so on. I think there are plans in France, there are plans in Ireland, additional ones. Aren't you afraid about, uh, because every country wants to have now its own uh, uh, asset, uh, aren't you afraid about overcapacity? Uh, well, if you go back to the beginning of the discussion, right, you have this, hey, we're making eight, you know, five and eight year investments and we have cyclicality quarters. I mean, you can't even tell me what the demand is next quarter, you know, much less, you know, five years from now. 
That said, you know, I think fundamentally compute and AI in particular are going to be like the gas law. They will expand to consume every amount of compute capacity that is economically available. You know, so I believe that becomes such a driver of demand that I think advanced logic capabilities, you know, I have no concern in this at all. Now, of course, when I explain to my board my crazy capital requests, I of course have to say that, not only say that, but say it with conviction. <laughs> now, we have, uh, I think, five minutes to go. Uh, let me see if there's any question here in the room. So, there must be, yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, John Chipman, uh, yeah. Executive Chairman of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, too. Uh, basically, uh, spirit. The first is that uh, I am told that once you get one the a limit A, is that true? Uh, and the second uh, question I have is, I am equally told that when Morris Chang establishes a foundry in Arizona or elsewhere, he does not have the confidence that that foundry can reach the same level of expertise as his own in Taiwan uh, for reasons of human capital. So can you explain when you're producing something uh, 80,000 times bigger than a, a human hair, why is the human skill so important? Yeah. So, you know, on the first topic, the way I like to describe it is Moore's law is like driving down the road on a foggy night, right? You maybe see 100 meters in front of you. When you've gone 20 or 30 meters down the road, you see about 100 meters in front of you. And Moore's law, we see about a decade in front of us, right? And I've been in the industry now for 42 years, right? You know, almost embarrassing to say it's been that long. But, uh, you know, with it, right, you know, I've heard about the death of Moore's law, you know, for about three decades, Right. And I sit here today telling you, I know how to build a trillion transistor chip by the end of the decade. Moore's law is alive and well. And we're going to keep making it true because it's not a law of physics. Right. As you suggest, when you get to one nanometer, you know, it's a law of innovation, of commitment, of economic pouring into the criticality of this technology. And we as a company, Intel, are going to keep making it true. Second, uh, on, uh, you know, uh, you know, TSMC is an extraordinary company. You know, they have refined a manufacturing capability and a customer orientation that is really unmatched in the industry. However, they do R&D and manufacturing in one place, Taiwan, right? Intel has operated with a distributed manufacturing footprint for over four decades. We know how to operate in different segments of the world. We know how to do this. We're about, you know, I see my, my best friend, Senator Portman here from Ohio. We're about to start the Silicon Heartland uh, in the center of the, U, of the United States, bringing manufacturing back to the heartland of America. You know, with it, we know how to operate distributed manufacturing. They don't yet. Right. And this idea of tethering of R&D and manufacturing. Right. He's right. They only have one place of R&D. You know, I have a distributed R&D model. I have a center of R&D uh, in Oregon and Arizona that are extraordinary in the world. We're absolutely convinced we know how to do this. Let the race continue. They're a great company, but we're committed to being back to unquestioned technology leadership in the world. And I think by 2025, we will have uh, proven that to the world with manufacturing of sub two nanometer uh, chips that are simply the best in the world, you know, based on Western technology. And we're pretty proud to be in that race. How many people do you have in research and development? 
Uh, you know, we're uh, on the order of 50,000 engineers 50, total, yeah. right? In the TD space, you know, in the core yeah. technology yeah. space in the order of 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, this is, you know. Impressive. Right. Yeah, Impressive. yeah. This is at scale R&D, yeah, right? Let me, we have time for one last question. Uh, any, anybody? Uh, right. Yeah, Senator Portman yeah, there. Sen yeah. Well, Pat, the difference that Ships Act makes, and as a co-sponsor of that bill, and having heard from a lot of my Republican colleagues about industrial policy and how that's not our direction, um, some of them thought we were overreaching and doing too much. Uh, the reality is there will still be considerable dependency, uh, mm -hmm. even when you combine the EU and the U.S. And you touched on that a little bit, but if you could talk a little more about that. I think when about 37 percent of chips 30 years ago um, to about 12 percent today. And even after $52 billion and about $39 billion mm -hmm. on the manufacturing side, my understanding is we will only be – at what number in terms of the percentage of yeah. semiconductors? We'll, we'll, we'll be crawling our way back into the 30s, right? You know, with chips one. You know, I do believe there'll need to be a chips two. Uh, at some point to continue building those policy decisions. And remember, these were bad policy decisions in the U.S. and tax policy, right, and capital investment policy, long-term R&D investments. All of those aggregately caused us to go from 80 to 20, right? To rebuild that, we're not going to do that in one act, as good as it was, thank you, Senator, right, you know, in a few years. This will take decades to rebuild this industry. But I really believe that CHIPS 1, CHIPS 2, fundamental industrial policy, you know, improvements in R&D, improvements in manufacturing, you know, capital uh, policies, you know, uh, rethinking of some of the financial requirements, long-term, you know, human capital development. I firmly believe that we can rebuild this industry and it's the right thing for our economies. It's the right thing for our industries and it's the right thing for our national security and we're deeply committed to help drive that you know simply put it's the right thing for the heritage of intel it's the right thing for the technology industry and it is the right thing for the world we're going to make it happen thank you pat we we have come to to an end of this discussion and i think what we have seen is a leader with with something which we so much need today when we talk about leadership it's conceptual uh, thinking um, and you are in one of the uh, most complex areas uh, high tech uh, at the at the edge and um, i I think uh, we all leave this uh, with a better knowledge about the industry and be impressed by your by your leadership. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Pat Gelsinger and Klaus Schwab. Find a transcript of this episode, as well as transcripts from my colleagues' episodes of Radio Davos at wef.ch slash podcasts. Me and my colleagues are covering the annual meeting all week, so make sure to follow on social media with the hashtag WEF24 or online at www.weforum.org for the latest insights from the world's top leaders. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me, with Taz Kelleher as editor and Gareth Nolan driving student Studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, reporting from beautiful Davos. Have a great day.